I'm David Bank. I'm Imogen Ray Smith. And I'm Brian Walsh. This is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. On today's show, we're going to talk about inequality and the age-old tension between capital and labor. Is impact investing on the side of capital or on the side of labor? What happens when impact investors optimize for one type of impact, say addressing climate change or launching products that address poverty, at the expense of another type of impact, like protection for workers? Our latest flashpoint in this debate comes from the recent Lyft IPO. According to its own assessment, the ride-sharing app-turned-transportation company claims it will have a long-term benefit for the environment by reducing the need for individual car ownership and shifting to electric vehicles. But some critics argue, and Lyft's own financial statements indicate, that Lyft's short-term and long-term impact on workers might be more bleak. Short-term, Lyft considers its drivers to be independent contractors, not employees, with all the protections therein. With the rise of autonomous vehicles, long-term, Lyft may not need drivers at all. So Imogen, can Lyft have its environmental impact cake and eat its workers too? It's certainly trying to. You know, what's, what's always been interesting about Lyft is, you know, Lyft has tried to be the good tech company versus the bad bully boys of Uber, right? And so if you're a write-on liberal consumer, you use Lyft, not Uber. And it's very much you know, it's the pink cars. It's very much made its reputation as that. And, you know, there, there is some credit to it. It also, also benefited from Uber's willingness to go out and have sharp elbows and do stuff like take on taxi unions and things like that. And, and Lyft could step into, be part of stepping into the void that was created. So when you look at its um, S1s and its filings, a lot of the narrative it's trying to tell is around, hey, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to be an independent contractor and you know, have a job being a driver and isn't it flexible and wonderful and blah, blah, blah. But we know, and this has been a long simmering discussion in the shared economy debate, that that comes at a cost of workers' protection and workers' rights. And we know also down the road for companies, including Lyft, that the end goal is often no workers at all, right? That it's robots, it's electric vehicles, and it's directly taking on things like the truckers' unions. So, so all of that is embedded in where Uber is going, where, sorry, where Lyft is going, where it sees its future. And to date, much of that debate has been happening um, in the private markets, in in venture capital, and among private investors, now as as these companies get public, it's shifting to the public markets, and so it becomes, you know, the conversation that public investors have to have, and it becomes part of you know the ESG conversation about what happens to the future of labor. Yeah. So now, David, this gets to a broader question of society's wealth distribution: Is income inequality a systemic investment risk? Well, I'm glad Imogen laid it out as ESG because I think that's the hook here. Um, you now have Lyft in the public markets and you'll have Uber soon enough and you'll have public pension funds and other big institutional investors buying their shares and you'll have the Black Rocks and everybody putting in. It'll be in every, in, you know, different kinds of indexes and things and it'll get into the portfolios of all of these investors who are now increasingly, maybe, you know, just in a nascent fashion, but they are increasingly moving into ESG investing to, as you say, Brian, take account of risks in the companies that are not necessarily the sort of traditional financial risks, but are environmental, social, and governance risks. 
And as you said, in the S1 that, that Lyft filed, you know, they put as a risk to them that they may have to count these workers as employees, not contractors, or that the workers may unionize. And it also counted as a risk, which I thought was interesting, that they may not be fast enough to get to autonomous vehicles um, and that if their competitors beat them to it or, or, or things go wrong and they don't have as many autonomous vehicles as the as their competitors, that they'll be you know at a, at a significant business disadvantage. So um, as Imogen said, they're pointing to a future where either the workers, you know, you know, where, where, where either they reduce the cost of workers in one way or they reduce the cost of workers in another way. And that doesn't necessarily bode well for their S rating. Now, Imogen, there are a few dimensions to the way that labor and impact investing intersect. So one way is that one of the big potential sources of capital to invest in impact investing products, in impact funds, in impact companies, uh, is through pension funds, the huge endowments that are paying out the beneficiaries of uh, public and private sector unions. Uh, so they're a huge source of capital. But then the other way that labor and impact investing intersect is that some of the impact investing early adopters are high net worth investors and foundations whose original source of wealth may have come from business practices that favored investors at the expense of workers. So how do you see impact investing uh, dealing with the, that, that dynamic? So, yeah, public pension plans and in particular the private sector union pension plans, you know, often referred to as Taft-Hartley plans, have long had embedded in their mission this idea of labor. Some of the early shareholder activists were union pension plans fighting for their labor rights. So that has always been been there and there's, you know, there is this tension within pension law that says, you know, I can't be a pipe fitter pension and just go and invest in a bunch of hotels to give my pipe fitter employees jobs because that would not be good for me as a steward of capital because I'm not diversifying my portfolio and investing responsibly. So there's always been this tension there and this idea within the organized labor movement that I have a responsibility to invest in pro-labor ways and where needs be, I should, as a asset owner, as a shareholder, take on management to ensure that they are respecting the rights of, of the workers. Now, the flip side of that is that, you know, private equity firms are historically amongst the biggest job disruptors, right? And who were the big funders of private equity firms? Lo and behold, they were pension plans. So there's always been sort of this schizophrenia within how the pension community has viewed the labor market when it look, when it comes at it through being an investor. And often you will see tensions between the people investing the capital and the ultimate pension beneficiaries. Um, impact has a different problem, which is that historically, if you think about the genesis of impact investing, it comes from the foundation community. It is not, whilst it cares about things like, you know, poverty, job creation, it is not inherently a pro-union project. And in fact, a lot of what it supports, for example, charter schools, is often intent in conflict with organized labor. It's often a market-based strategy, which can be, in some cases, in conflict, certainly with public sector unions, because it's there is a privatization agenda maybe embedded in that. Exactly. 
So, David, what's at stake here? What's really at stake, Brian, is the division of wealth in society. At some level, it's it's basically share of the benefits of increased productivity in the economy. And as Imogen's saying, that's basically a power struggle. Um, and you know, over t- you know, in, historically, you know, unions you know represented a bastion of that kind of power and, and negotiated better deals. Now they're largely broken on the private side, and the public side is is you know de- definitely under under fire. And the question is, what are their other forces that could be mobilized that would actually help drive more wealth to more people, um, as unions historically did, but but no longer do. And, you know, the question at some level becomes for those same pension fund managers, whether maybe they're actually one of those levers, because they do have this broad long-term view. They have to pay pensions out 30, 40, 50 years from now. They do have a basic beneficiary base, which is made up of the very workers that are that are under threat. And, you know, they do have enormous power in the marketplace because of, of their heft. And, they, and, and so there's a notion, as, as we've talked about before, of universal ownership, that, that in fact, income inequality is a long-term systemic risk to the marketplace as a whole. If you are such a big investor that you have your investments all across the market, you can't kind of escape those risks. And therefore, why not invest to mitigate those risks at a system level? And therefore, why not screen your portfolios at, you know, just at one level to, you know, come up with companies that are, are decreasing income inequality than increasing income inequality. I'm sure Imogen here says, David, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, this Weren't is... Weren't you going to say that, Imogen? This is the point in the podcast where I tell you that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I walked right um, into that. <laughs> I don't understand how I can simultaneously be a universal owner and make a deliberate strategy to invest in companies that support or promote a specific agenda or economic worldview. This is where we got to a few weeks ago on the ESG podcast, which is to say that what it really provides is a, is a hook for accountability. And I think Brian and others have asked, you know, well, you know, let's see some accountability. But at least you have a logical train. And the logical train goes something like um, uh, ESG are risk indicators. Um, as a fiduciary, I must look at risks. Um, that will affect my portfolio. Some of them are particular, co- you know, co- company risks, and some of them are systemic risks. And as I look at systemic risks, I I need to have a long-term view so that I make sure that those systemic risks don't come up and bite my whole portfolio. And I think in co- and I think I, I think of climate as a systemic risk now because I've seen all the 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 studies that show that all these different assets are at risk in different ways. And increasingly, income inequality is also a systemic risk that puts various parts of my portfolio in all sorts of different ways at risk in the long term. Now, I'm a public pension fund manager. How do I deal with that? Okay. So, Imogen, you know the institutional investment community. Uh, is that uh, is how David puts it, uh, the, the way that they think about these long-term risks? It's certainly true that this question of income inequality and job creation, and those are really the two different but obviously very related questions, are of growing concern to institutional investors, long-term asset owners, and macroeconomic thinkers, right? And, you know, Moody's put out a report in October saying that the U.S. credit rating could be downgraded as a result of income inequality. That is a growing threat. I think we can clearly see that 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 is an increasing cause for concern um, and is something that people are thinking about. That said, you know, I think this idea of sort of long-term asset ownership is sort of used to as a blanket statement to make investors do things that activists and others would like them to do, right? The, you know, 
in the long term we'll all be dead right that there is there there are short and mid-term issues that come into play for any asset owner right so you know the greater risk to my portfolio currently is not stranded asset risk it's the price of oil right so even as i might be considering what is the impact of climate change on my investment portfolio over the next 10 20 30 years i have a current responsibility to invest for the next quarter for the next year and that means two different things the same is also true when we think about income inequality and job creation right so am i not going to participate in the am i not going to invest in lyft am i not going to invest in amazon am i not going to invest in you know when it goes public uber because i am concerned about the long-term prognosis for what it means for jobs no because i still as a fiduciary have a responsibility to participate in the current economy. So I think that's that's kind of where the tension lies for asset owners and trying to figure out how do we respond to this. And by the way, think about what is it that brought down the car companies, right? It was their pension benefits, right? So the flip side is also true that that you can have and think about pension liabilities in general, right? That those two present a you know, a huge looming liability and burden that needs to be taken into account. I want to just call out that it's not just a long-term abstract discussion about what companies these and, and what policies and practices and strategies of companies that these pension funds want to invest in. So, for example, when 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 executives at, at Davos and then the New York Times had a, an excellent sort of story with talking to people behind the scenes at Davos talk about job uh, replacement by automation it's no longer a 20 30 40 year thing and it's no longer a 10 to 20 percent reduction the executives of you know you know the Foxcons and the Infosys and the and the and the and and, and big employers around the world are talking about replacing you know 90 to 95 percent of their workers in the next 10 years that kind of thing and it maybe won't get there but it'll get you know somewhere along that pathway so the question is whether pension funds want to ride the increased stock prices as a result of those job reductions or whether they want to drive with their shareholder engagement policies or what have you um, a different kind of strategy that will at least soften that cushion, you know, cushion that blow as as jobs are, are and, and, and have the kind of, you know, comprehensive, holistic, worker centric strategies that are out there, but are not going to get funded on their own unless there's some pressure. And that, that that pressure, David, so that pressure would come from not the fiduciaries necessarily, not the the asset managers, but the ultimate asset owners. So it would have to come from the pension boards representing the beneficiaries of those pension funds to put pressure or to set policies and investment policy statements uh, that uh, essentially force the hand of their asset managers to invest uh, alongside their values or principles around uh, protection for workers. So effectively- Right, so all a, a radical democracy among all the, all the um, pension beneficiaries. Yeah, so effectively what you're arguing for is a world in which pension boards set worker company worker policies right 
that seems well set policies is 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 a, is a particularly loaded way to put it but influence direction yes. right influence direction via putting setting policies that their asset managers have to follow and then the asset managers then would be responsible for engaging the management of the companies in which they invest to advocate for strong worker protections and strong worker policies at the companies so yes indirectly yes and you have confidence in the good people of the CalPERS board and the good people of the Norwegian pension plan to set those standards in the way that is best for the companies in question, the workers in question, and the economy overall. That's their, that's, that's their, that's their, that's what they claim. That's what they claim every day as they manage these billions and trillions, isn't it? That they know how to deal with these complex yeah, a lot of, I think that nor, the and, Northern um, European um, pension funds are, are probably much further out ahead on this with with uh, policy statements and mandates uh, for their asset managers to uh, to incorporate uh, an understanding and an engagement on these worker protection issues alongside and this is, these are these are these are not these are not new these are not new issues for anybody these are this is the uh, tried and true as you said at the outset these are tried and true issues for all these kind of managers over time the question is whether now that there's a kind of um, schema called you know ESG and people do have some emerging consensus around what S might mean in this context. Um, you know, you know that I think it's basically going to be be joined, and all these guys are going to have to face it, and they're going to have to face whether whether they're you know whether, you know like it doesn't all flow in the the radical democracy among the pension beneficiaries doesn't all flow in one direction. The pension beneficiaries may say, you know, full steam ahead. Um, you know, give us our returns and, and safeguard our pensions, and we don't care what the what the environmental policies are, for right. example. Right. Yeah, you are actually you are actually seeing that you're seeing a sort of a push back against the 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 use of ESG by some pensions. But I think you know, look, there's another point to this, which is that you are assuming that you know more jobs at every company is a good thing, right? Surely, surely this is going to change over time. And, and yes, as a society, we need to figure out how do we create more and better jobs? We also need to figure out how can we share the equity, right? How can we go from, how do we not have this have and have not economy where you have shareholders and equity holders and everyone else? And, you know, again, that's the sort of the gig economy to how do we have a more fair and equitable economy. I think the idea that like, you know, pension activism is the way to get there is like dangerous, you know? I think that as a fiduciary, pension plans have a responsibility to do the best by their beneficiaries. And that in turn often means aligning with a set of values which arguably should be pro-labor, should be pro-job creation. But that that cannot be the solution to the overall problem. Well, no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right about that. And it is as we started at the top saying it is much more of a broad social contract question and and not just a narrow fiduciary, you know, uh, uh, institutional investor question. Um, and the broad social question, though, is, as you say, there are policies. I, I'm, I tend to be an optimist on this. I don't actually think. I think that you know <laughs> the new the new me, the new David. stage of labor the new stage of labor opens up new opportunities and that, you know, that, that breaking up, you know, structures and, you know, can open up new, new innovations. But I want to say in though, as those innovations, you know, roll out, you want to make sure that the, 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 the bounty of that new prosperity is being shared. And so that's where there does need to be a popular mobilization, whether that's from, you know, pension beneficiaries, union members, you know, the, you know, citizens of the, of the world, you know, but there does need to be a countervailing force to just this 
you know, continual up, 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 upselling of, of, of all the wealth. I mean, that just can't go on. But David, uh, is that is that a proper role for engagement by universal asset owners, or is that a proper role for engagement by citizens engaging uh, their government representatives to affect you know regulations and policies that that, that counter- as, as 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 you know, and I'm 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 repeatedly on the record. I'm an all of the above guy. So I think everything works in in harmony. But you want to have all row all all oars rowing in the same direction towards more money, more wealth for more people, more policies and strategies that are the same kind of distributed. You know strategies that are that are that, that are sort of tech. You know, there's sort of a tech template to this. Like we now have the wherewithal to distribute wealth. It's better for everybody in the entire marketplace for more people to have more wealth. Therefore, let's get a whole raft of business and finance strategies that drive wealth down the pyramid. That is an impact investing, ESG imperative, I believe, for long-term sustainability. That's a cool and interesting economic, tech, policy problem for everybody to work on. I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think the problem when you frame this in terms of organized labor in part is that, you know, it's not the responsibility of unions to promote the well-being of all. It's the responsibility of unions to promote the well-being of their, their member base, right? So that can in the same way that like an impact investor can be in conflict over like job creation and climate change, organized labor has a lot of the same problems, right? That at a certain point, protecting my protecting and growing my membership if I'm a coal union comes at the cost of climate change, right? And so the, it, it's not necessarily a contract for social good, it's a contract for the type of growth that benefits the people that I am supposed to benefit. I mean, again, this is why impact investing is in conflict with the teachers' unions, because impact investing would say teachers' unions don't benefit children, they benefit teachers, and teachers' unions say, yes, that's our job, right? So there there are tensions that exist on both sides, and, and even as, you know, we're all sort of trying to move together to... to create and promote you know greater equality everyone like everyone is not effectively doing pulling for the same thing yeah and i think this gets at you know we've talked a lot uh and it's one of the perennial conversations in the impact investing market has been this trade-off debate right uh is is there a trade-off between financial performance and environmental or social performance. And there are those who say we need to move beyond the trade-off debate and, and, and think about different ways to optimize for both. Uh, but I think that here we're talking about the trade-off between uh, protection for workers and protections for the environment. Uh, and are those, do they have to be in tension or are there ways to optimize for both? That can we have, uh, you know, can we have an, an impact investment market that is trying to deliver strong financial uh, returns alongside worker protection and job creation, alongside uh, climate uh, change uh, mitigation and risk reduction and environmental sustainability. Is is it possible to have the hat trick of all three? So it's interesting. It's sort of like, um, 
there's often sort of like a paternalistic element to impact investing, right? That kind of says, trust us. We have, you know, there's a lot of focus on intentionality. We have good intentions. It'll all be okay, right? Yes, you can have, you know, you can have your cake and not eat your workers. Um, and s the flip side is that organized labor is very, very defined by structure and very rigid. And so it, defends what it defends very well, but it's not good at being flexible. So in a sense, what you need, and in a sense this is where capitalism comes in, is some kind of balance between the two. And some ways to navigate between, yeah, you know, the sort of free markets, um, sort of and Randian world, and the rigid defensive world. And I don't think that, I don't think we're good at finding that balance. Well, I think you both hit it on the head. I mean, you've laid out what the what, what the obstacles have been. I would just say that you know the promise. I mean, this this the challenge is exactly what what you said, which is overcoming those obstacles, not coming to just the sort of balance between the two, but sort of the you know if the the transcendent um, um, uh, synthesis um, of the dialectical problem, as 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 you as you laid it out. And so there's the question is whether there is that mythical win-win that you know that 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 enlarges the pie that shares the wealth and that uh, you know is, is better for all that I think is the challenge that impact investing has taken on for itself I have no idea like you say whether it can it can it can achieve it or but not. when it does achieve it you'll read about it uh, in the digital pages of impact alpha you'll read it you, you heard it here first That's right that's going to do it for this episode of returns on investment thank you David thank you Brian and thank you Imogen Thank you, Brian. David Bank is founder and editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, and Imogen Rose-Smith is the investment fellow with the University of California. And thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.